This morning, if you have your copy of God's Word, I'd ask you to turn over to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, for the past two weeks, Pastor Scott has been talking in light of Valentine's Day on the marriage relationship. Two weeks ago, he was in 1 Corinthians 13, and and last week in Ephesians 5, talking about the roles of the husband and the wife. And when he got done with that, I saw, wow, that next passage right after that, the role of the family. I called him. I said, you mind? Are you, were you going, like, going to do a series on that? Or would it be okay if I went ahead and preached chapter 6, the first part? He said, man, that'd be great. Do it. So when I saw that, I jumped on it to say, you know what? I want to talk about uh, Ephesians 6, the role of the family. I was going to go on and talk about the role of the employer and the employee. But when I started unpackaging this, I'm like, there's no way we're going to have enough time. We've got to be done and out of here. And so we're going to stick with the first four verses and talk about those. Now, I do want to point out something. Uh, Our marriages, the institution of marriage is under attack. Not only by the world, but by the devil. And when you think about what marriage is, it is a picture of the gospel. It is a picture of Jesus, the groom, coming back for his church, the bride. It is an institution that God created from the beginning. So it is it any wonder that the world and the devil is out to debunk it? Folks, who's next in line? Marriages are, are first in line, but right behind them in a close second is our family. Folks, our families are instituted by God. So we need to be ready. We need to be ready. Because we will face a spiritual spiritual attack. If you go down in this chapter, we're not going to go there this morning, but if you went down to verse 11 and 12, you're going to see that it's bigger than man. This is a thing that we face that's spiritual. Spiritual warfare is happening when it comes to the battle for our marriages and for our family. Be ready. Now, many of you have been studying family dysfunction in Sunday school Jonathan has mentioned the, today's lesson, which you're going to, I don't want to steal your Sunday school's thunder, because they're going to be talking about some of this. But we've been looking at the second half of Genesis, and folks, a modern day soap opera has nothing on the second half of Genesis. I mean, there was some of it, I mean, and we were, I work with college students, and we, Chris Teal got the lesson, thank goodness, on the part that was really tough, and he's like, guys, I'm going to let you read this because I'm not reading this out loud. You can go read it. I'm going to give you, you know, a thumbnail, but we're not going there. Folks, it's crazy when you start reading chapter 25 through 50 of Genesis. But let me give you some of the highlights. Maybe we better to say the lowlights uh, of, of, of these chapters. Jacob was his mother's favorite. His brother Esau was his father Isaac's favorite. No problem there, right? Anyway, yeah. Jacob, the trickster, which is what his name means, cheated his brother and aging father out of the birthright or the blessing, and uh, by the way, his mom helped him. Jacob, in turn, is tricked by his future father-in-law into working seven years for his daughter's hand in marriage, only to find out, don't know how this happened, but he married the wrong daughter. Wow. So seven more years to go ahead and get, not Leah's hand, he had 
her hand in marriage. Now he wanted to marry Rachel, which is the one he originally wanted to marry. So he works another seven years and, and, and marries Rachel, by the way, who is his favorite. He didn't learn. And Rachel's sons, among all of the sons, are Jacob's favorite, the first being Joseph and the second being Benjamin. And Jacob even makes Joseph this coat of many colors that made him special. Folks, that wouldn't have caused any friction at your house, would it? If you're like my family, Sherry makes sure that all the kids have the same number of Christmas presents under the tree. We're diligent to do that, right? We do our best to do for all what we do for one because they do remember and they will use it against you. (laughs) Parents, yes, they will. Dad, remember what you did for Bryson? Yeah, you're right. Forgot about that, but thanks for reminding me. They remember. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 is packed with practical teaching on the godly family relationship. Would you stand as we read verses 1 through 4? And I'll read it. You read it with me. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction, yours may say fear and admonition, of the Lord. Let's pray. God, parenting is hard. It is a difficult task. And God, I think probably everybody in this room, including myself, could say, you know what, I could be better. I could do a better job. So God, I pray as we go through this passage this morning that you would speak to our hearts if there are things in there that we need to fine-tune. Maybe we're not a parent yet. Or maybe we're a grandparent. God, these are all lessons we still can apply to the way we treat these young people, these children you bring into our lives. God, help us. There is a world out there, there is a devil out there that wants to sift our children and ruin them. God, we need you. We ask this in all of God's people said, amen. Please be seated. Now, I want to give you a little bit of climate in which the Apostle Paul writes this letter. In that day of Roman culture, the father had absolute authority. He could sell his family off as slaves. He could make them work as slaves, even in chains. The father could punish his children to any degree, even inflicting the death penalty. The father also had complete authority over the child for his entire life. A Roman son never came of age. He would always be under his father's absolute power, no matter how accomplished or or self-sustaining he became. The father had the authority to decide on the life of the newborn child. When a child was born, it was placed at the father's feet. If the father bent down, picked up the child, acknowledged the child, that meant he wanted to keep it. But if the father turned his back and walked away and did not acknowledge the child... It was thrown out like a piece of garbage. So many times in this culture, a newborn child was considered misfortune and inconvenience. So few children were left living in that the Roman government passed legislation that allowed unwanted babies to be left in the Roman forum. 
Now, that's the, the center city or the, the town square. People could legally leave them there. Childless couples were penalized in the legacy or the tax credit that they could receive, which would give them incentive to go there and adopt these children that were left. That would happen. But sadly, many of these children were taken to eventually be sold into the slave markets. Sickly or deformed children had very little hope of survival in this culture. In fact, and I hate to even say this out loud, many times these children were taken and drowned. We cringe at the backdrop of Paul's writing here in Ephesians 6, but ironically, it is not too far off from the society and culture being proposed today. Are we disgusted by it? Folks, the church needs to say something. So big point number one, the children's role in the godly family. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, we have to break some of this down because when we say this statement, several questions come to my mind, and I want to answer some of those as we go through this passage because it will bring out some insight. First of all, uh, a question is, who are qualified here as children? Who are qualified here as children? In the original language, the word used here does refer to offspring. But this word also implied that it referred to all children living under the support of parents. Once a child was married off and moved out from under the financial support of the parents, they then made the decisions for their family. I now have one of those, and they are doing great. They've been over a couple of times to eat uh, with us, and it's been great. been very nice. It's ironic that I have John Gurley in my notes this morning. Uh, We just prayed for him, but he shared with me after all three of his boys moved out. By the way, Zeke is getting ready to get married very soon. John told me this. He said, you know your kids are truly on their own when they buy their own toilet paper. (laughs) That's pretty good logic. Young person, if you're in here and you're, buying, uh, you're not buying your own toilet paper, you're qualified as one of these children. <laughs> Pretty good logic. So that's who the children are referring to. The next question is, how are you to obey your parents? How? The phrase, in the Lord, is tagged on here. And Paul could have just said, children, obey your parents. Left it. But he's, he puts on there, in the Lord. And there's a twofold reason Paul adds this phrase. The first one is this. You could say it like this. Children, obey your parents like you would obey the Lord. Like you would obey the Lord. If you are a parent in the room, you can easily go back to the event of each of your children's births. Right now, you're probably thinking about those. Uh, for the older generation, man, you were probably sitting out in the lobby you know, watching a football game or something, waiting for the news, right? I actually got, a, got the opportunity to be in the room when all three of my kids were born. I want to describe it a little bit. We have been through roughly nine months of anticipation. You have been to hear the heartbeat through sonograms. You have seen the images on the ultrasound. And I don't know if you've seen an ultrasound lately. It's not like the ultrasounds we looked at. I mean, you can see facial expression. They call it 4D, whatever that means. I mean, they can turn the baby all different ways. Look at their face. I mean, it's crazy, the images. It's not now looking at a thing going, yeah, I think I see that's a baby. I mean, it's a baby, right? You can see it. 
You can see it. And so you go through that, and, and, and you know, you see your wife's stomach getting bigger. You're like, that baby's getting bigger. Uh, the mom feels and sees the baby kicking. But when I first saw and heard Bryson and Cassidy and Cameron, my mouth fell open. I was like, that is a baby. For the second one, it was, those are twin babies. <laughs> babies. Wow. So your first response is, that is a miracle. That is an absolute miracle. If you see that process, you go that through that and say, eh, I don't know if there's a God. Man, something is wrong. So first of all, you see this miraculous birth happen. And then the second thought, and especially probably for the men, we think, I am responsible for this helpless little child that they just put in my arms, looking down, making all these little noises. I am responsible for the upbringing of this child. Parents, you are the first view of authority in your child's life. And hear this, the way they respond to your authority is the way they are going to be programmed to respond to other authority, including teachers, future bosses, authority structure in their future marriage and family, civil authority. And ultimately, and this is the one to hear the most, how they respond to God's authority. No pressure. Wow. Your authority as a parent is going to be challenged by that little sinner very soon in the parent-child relationship. Get ready. You don't have to teach a child to be selfish. You don't have to teach a child to lie. You don't have to teach a child to be sneaky. It all comes naturally. In fact, the opposite is very true. You have to teach them to share. You have to teach them to tell the truth. Teach them to have the right motives and fight against the flesh. You have to teach them how to obey. Teaching and disciplining your child is also unique to every child. I had one. I could look at him and say, do you want a spanking? They go, uh-huh. And then I had another one. I'd say, do you want a spanking? And they'd fall to pieces. They're all different. And you've got to figure it out. They don't come with a manual other than God's word, right? How many of you are first child, the first child in your family? Would you raise your hand? Okay, I see some of these around here. Let, let me apologize to you. You may not realize it. You probably do if you're older. But in many ways, you are the guinea pig of discipline in your family. There are all kinds of questions that new parents have. How long should I let them cry? When do I spank them? When do I allow grace? What battles do I fight and where do I let go? Can I give you one thing that should always be dealt with, though, in your family, with, with your disciplining of your children? Here's one definite Direct disobedience. You better deal with it. Direct disobedience. When you've asked your child to do something and they flat out say no, we know that one, right? Or they say yes, but they never do it. When you've asked or warned your child, teenager, young adult, not to do something and they do it. We cannot let these go. 
Why? You are formulating the way they answer to God. Now, this happens differently as your child grows. I want to give you some insight. I love the way Brody Holloway, director of Snowbird, talks about disciplining your children and helping them be obedient. He puts, three phase, puts it in three phases that I can understand. So the first phase, if you're filling in your note sheet, you can write in, it's the policeman phase. The policeman phase. This is for the first 10 to 12 years of your child's life. You're in this phase. Now, it's going to depend because, like I said, each child is different. In this phase, you are laying down the law. That's why we call it the policeman phase. There's very little room here in this phase for reasoning with the child. They're not capable of rationalizing with you as an adult. Discipline has to involve something that breaks their will, their spirit. It has to. And again, each child is different. Now, I will say this, spanking will work for most children. And I want to say this clearly, spanking is biblical. My dad is very biblical. (laughs) Proverbs 13, 24 says this, Whoever spares the rod hates, not dislikes, hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Now, the problem comes in when I, as the dad, spank out of anger instead of love. Have I done that? I got to admit, I have. Have I had to go back and apologize to my kids for it? I have. What do you do? How do you spank out of love? When I, when I sent that little sinner to his or her room first, yeah, it was a timeout for them, but folks, you know what? It was a timeout for me. I got to simmer down. I got to cool off. Because if I go up there right now, I'm going to beat their fanny till they're, I mean, it's not going to be pretty. I got to cool off. I'd have Sherry saying, now, Kevin, remember discipline and love. Right, honey. But I gotta, I gotta cool out here. In the times that it was right, when discipline was done in love and not in anger, is when I got my head on straight. Parents, be careful. Simmer down. That's the first phase. The next phase is this: the coaching phase. Now, these are during the teen years. How many of you have ever coached a sports team in here? Let me see your hands. Okay, I have done that. I. I'm not very good at it, but I enjoyed it, and, and mainly it was basketball, and we had an upward program here, and, and, and I was able to do that. I enjoyed it, but what was one of the things I really loved as a coach, and if you've coached, you know this, when I saw my players getting it, man, when I saw them getting it, now you start practice, the first practice, the team is terrible, they come out there, and they're bouncing the ball off their feet. They can't dribble with their opposite hand, their left hand, or if they're right-handed. I mean, they, te- they don't even think about passing. All they do is want to shoot. And their form is terrible. Their feet aren't, you know, squared up. They're chunking it up with two hands. They don't have that elbow and that nice arch and that follow-through and the ball turning correctly and just going, Phew. you know that sound? When you shoot a swish in a basket, it's gratifying. That, that man, you hear that? Man. You start seeing that, though, because here's what happens. 
you start to coach. You come out there and you see the kids, you kind of assess their ability, and you take this guy over. He's got to work on dribbling. This guy over here, he's one of my big men. I want him on the post. I want him to learn that position. Get him down there. Repeatedly, he's throwing. Don't even put the ball down. Keep it up there. Turn. Shoot. Put it off. See that square up there? Here's where you want to put it off. And you just do it over and over and over. And, And through that season, you get there, they're terrible at first, but all of a sudden a play works. You're like, what? They're starting to get, by the end of the season, man, they're like a well-oiled machine. And what happens? The season's over. And you got to sign up next year to go back over here to all those terrible players that come in again. I mean, the season's over, right? But boy, that is an incredible feeling as a coach to do that. Now, you stretch their abilities and challenge them to do better. You make them run laps and do up-downs if they goof off. Here they are in practice. You're over here trying to teach, and there's guys talking. You turn around and say, take a lap. You go back over here and teach because they're talking, and you can't do it. Uh, they, they mishandle the ball. They make a bad pass. We would say in the, when we were in the middle of the season, if you cause a turnover, you're going to do lap, a lap for every turnover. So take care of the ball. We get up there at the end. We're shooting free throws. You know how important free throws are, right? We'd shoot 10 free throws. For every free throw you, you miss, you're running a lap. We would build in this thing. When they're, when they're goofing off and messing up, we put in consequences. We were also building their stamina. They didn't realize that. We were helping them with that too. But we were, we were helping them, honing their skills, and be careful, and be attentive, and watch what they're doing. How does that translate in a coaching phase into the parent, this parenting phase? First of all, you've got to be involved in their life. A coach is involved in that player's life, and they're watching their skills. They're honing their skills. They're, they, they'll pull them over in a game. They'll call like, like a substitution, send somebody in off the bench. They call a guy over, and they say, look, man, what are you doing? You're camping out down in the lane. You've got to move through the lane. You can't stand down there because you're going to get a three-seconds call, and we're going to get a turnover. Move through the lane. Get back in there. Sub it. You go back in. That's what we do, right? Are we doing that as a parent? In order to do that, you've got to observe them. You've got to be around them. You've got to be with them. You've got to spend time with them. And you've got you to pull them over sometimes and say, hey, don't do that. Do this. Don't, don't do that. Do this. Put them back in the game. You have to show them good form. What does that mean? They have to see you living a disciplined life. That jump shot that you take out on the court in front of them, it needs to show good form. They're going to watch you. I'm going to tell you something right now. Your kids are watching you. And the tough part about it, when my kids were growing up, they remembered all the bad stuff. Seemed like. They could play that stuff back real easy. Where's the good stuff that dad was doing? And hopefully some of that stuck too. But for some reason, they see those bad things. And they repeat them and they do them. We've got to show them good form. The third thing, we have to call them out when they start veering off. Like I said, sometimes we can pull them aside and just warm them, warn them. Other times they're running laps, which in parenting that means electronics are gone. Keys are back on the hook. They only come off for work, as my dad would say. Activities are canceled. Sorry, you're not going this weekend. You did this and whatever, and so that's done. You're not going. Here's what happens. They will know there are boundaries And within those boundaries, they know, whether they don't like it or or whatever, they know that you care about them and that you're involved in their life. 
And I can almost guarantee that they will come back to you at a later date and say, thank you, Dad, for those boundaries. Thank you, Mom, for those boundaries. Because I saw a lot of my friends doing what they wanted to do, and now their life is a mess. But you cared. They'll come back. Third phase is the friend phase. Now, this happens in the 20-somethings. Praise the Lord, it is starting to happen at my house, and it is wonderful. More and more, we're having adult conversations with our children. Are there things we can still help them with? Absolutely. Are there things they can help us with? Absolutely. But what about discipline in this phase? Ask if you can share some insight. If they say no, then don't share. Okay, not going to share. But you know what's going to put? It's going to plant a seed in that. They're probably going to go away and go, Oh, Dad was going to say something to me. I wonder what he was going to say about this because I'm about to make some, I mean, I don't want to make a bad error. So they may call you back and say, Dad, you know you're going to share. They may come back and say, you know you're going to share with us? And we said, no, how about sharing with us? We thought through that. They'll probably come back. Here's another one. Don't be afraid to share a mistake you made back when, when you were their age and how you learned from it. Because I can guarantee you there's some things we, that I've done, they're getting ready to do, that I, I'm going to say, don't do this. Because dad messed up. Don't be afraid to do that. Let them learn from your mistakes. You can't demand they obey you when they're on their own. Can I say something? If you start demanding, you better come over to my house at Christmas. You better come over to my house at Thanksgiving. Well, first of all, they got another family. They're trying, to, they're trying to build their own traditions And if you put that pressure on them to be at your house here now, and you better be here, or I'm going to be upset, whatever. Guys, that's a mistake as a parent with adult children. They're already under a lot of pressure to figure this thing out. Help them. Be accommodating. You can't demand they obey you when they're on their own. One thing I didn't mention in each phase, and I was not good at all in these phases, going through these phases with my kids. I'm still working on it. Always reward and point out good and godly behavior. Tell your kids you're proud of them. Tell your kids that you love them. As a parent, I was quick to point out everything they were doing wrong and help coach them when they were doing wrong. But when they did right, we're like, okay, we walk off. No, I needed to pull them aside and say, that was awesome. I saw what you did over there, and that was awesome. Point it out when they get it. Now, the policeman, the coach, the friend. Problems with obedience and rebellion come when we as parents mix mix the order of these phases or jump into the next phase too early or too late. I want you to think about this for a minute. What happens when we want to be our child or our teenager's friend? That is a recipe for disaster. They can't reason like an adult, so they get away with murder. And because we want, them to be li- uh, they want, to, we want them to like us, we look the other way, we blame it on somebody else. You cannot mix the friend phase in the policeman or the coach phase. It is going to be a bad thing. How about when we wait to start the policeman phase in their teen years? They don't have a strong foundation of right and wrong. Their actions are now coming out in a much bigger scale. It's not Johnny Push Susie anymore. It's 
like speeding in their car or, or racing or, or looking at drugs or other things. I mean, we can go down the list. There's a lot more to choose from now, and we should have dealt with it back here. But now we're thinking, uh-oh, got to kick in policeman phase when they're teenagers. What happens? Anger, rebellion. Probably what's going to kick in is the policeman phase, but in a way with the actual police. So I want to go back. Ephesians 6.1, we have the second aspect of children obey your parents in the Lord. You could also say that phrase this way, and there's some element of this in this phrase. You could say, obey your parents inside the will of the Lord. Now, what's the difference? What happens if a parent asks you to do something that is blatantly against the will of God? This comes up when we, when we say this. Now, this passage, remember, is written to believers in Ephesus. There was an expectation from Paul that this was instruction to believing parents who had not put their, their children in this kind of a situation. Here is what I found when I researched the question, is it ever okay to, obey, to disobey my parents? Here's what I found. And this goes back to the living children under the authority of, and support of the parent. You should always obey your parents unless you're asked to violate a specific law of God. Now, sometimes this can be very sticky. And you need to lean on God for wisdom here, young people. Let me give you an example. Probably 18 years ago, we went to summer camp. Several of, several of our students made decisions to accept Jesus as Savior. And when we got we were back, we were planning on having a big celebration, baptismal service, and all that. We told the, the teens about it, and they were excited. And one of the girls in our youth group came to us from a, diff, a different denomination. She was baptized as a baby, uh, but had later made a decision here uh, in our youth group to accept Jesus as Savior. She wanted to get baptized with this group, and I told her to go home, talk to her mom about it, and that we would love to have her be a part of that group. Well, she came back to me on that Wednesday, almost in tears, and told me that night would be her last night coming to Pitts Baptist Youth. I was shocked. I'm like, what's wrong? What, what happened? She said she went home and told her mom that she wanted to be baptized, and her mom was very upset, very offended, that this girl's baptism was not good enough for us. That's the way she looked at it. And she'd already been baptized. And that she was done coming to pitch. You're done going there. I stood there a minute and told this girl that she would be greatly missed and I would be praying that her mom would have a change of heart. Now the girl was upset at me. She wanted me to go and fight for her, to try and convince her uh, her mom, that she should be able to come and be baptized. I told her that in this case, she needed to obey her mom. In fact, I told her this might even be a test. We had talked in the past, and this girl was pretty sure her mom was not a believer and was concerned about it. We had talked about ways that she, as the daughter, could have a great influence on her mom by sharing and living the gospel. Here was a chance to live the gospel and obey her mom. She agreed, and we both started praying about it. I think it was Friday she called. Her mom had a change of heart. She would allow her to be baptized and even wanted to come to the service and be a part of that. That leads us to Ephesians 6, 2, and 3. It says, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. 
Do you hear what this girl did? She honored her mom. Whether she agreed with her or not, she obeyed and she did it with honor. That addresses the third question. What should a child's attitude be towards parents? This, and this transcends age. It would never be appropriate to, to dishonor your parents. Those that qualify as children, this takes obeying your parents to a different level. Can children obey parents and yet not honor them? Yes. We can obey and grumble about what we have to do the entire time. This is not obeying with the right attitude. What are some things we can do as parents to help our children obey with the right attitude? Let me give you a few. Number one, sometimes set specific and realistic goals that have rewards built in. Have rewards built in. Then other times, help your children see that some of the best rewards come in volunteering and serving others. We don't, I mean, we as adults, we don't get paid for everything we do to serve and love and and do things for other people and volunteer. It's important they learn that at a young age. And number three, help your children find a sense of accomplishment in finishing a task. Now, I don't know if you're like me. I said this to my group last Sunday night in our prayer study. I am a list-oriented person. Are you that way? I mean, I have my list. And you know what I love to do with my list? Cross off my list. That's gratifying. And, and the Saturdays, when we have a big list of stuff to do around the house, Sherry would make out a chore list and write out all the stuff. And man, when you check that list off and get your, and get your kids, you don't do it, but get your kids to help you and let them cross off the list. As hard as that is, because I want to do it. Let them do it. And let them see and feel that accomplishment. And then if you finish the list, say, hey, guys, if we can finish the list today, tonight we are going to McDonald's. Woohoo! Man, they'll be all over it. Here's the fourth one, and this one stings a little bit. Model a good attitude toward your job and your boss and have a strong work ethic. Model it. Guys, that's my dad. He modeled that. When he was in his working years, he would tell me, if you decide to become a garbage man, and no offense to anybody in here if you're a garbage man, because you guys make pretty good money, from my understanding. Um, He said, it doesn't matter if you decide to become a garbage man. He said, you be the best garbage man you can be. And he would say this, too. He would say, please the boss. Well, that was another thing he gave me, my dad. When I started getting ready to go to work, please the boss. He was referring to my earthly boss, and we should do that. But listen to what Colossians 3.23 says. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you receive the inheritance as your reward. Guys, we're talking about the boss. And I, I mean, that's even, not even a good word for him, but for God. Work as unto the Lord. And then a fourth question comes out of verse 2. What is the promise that comes with obeying parents and obeying with the right attitude? What's the promise? If you go back to Exodus 20, where we find the original Ten Commandments, we see that this is the fifth commandment, and it's worded almost the same. Let me read it. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land, that, your Lord, that the Lord your God is giving you. First of all, in one sense, this is just practical advice. Practical advice. If you listen to your parents, you're going to live longer. Let me give you some examples. Look both ways when you cross the street. Don't run with scissors or a knife. Drive carefully. Don't text and drive. 
These are all things we say as a parent. And if our kids listen to them, guess what? Their chances are they're going to live much longer life. It's just practical, right? Stuff that we tell them. But in another sense, this is a promise from God. If we truly honor our parents, God is going to bless us with a long, blessed life. Think about this. Is your family heritage, your beliefs, your traditions, your actions passed on to the next generation? Yes. Your kids will learn from you. They will see what you do. I was watching Danny Brown. It's been a while back. I was sitting in the core. I was watching Danny Brown. He has a distinct walk. You know Danny, kind of back and forth. And not far behind him, guess what, was Jacob. And I sat there and went, he walks exactly the same as Danny. I mean, I almost had a giggle inside. It's little Danny. I mean, he's taller than Danny now, but back then he was little. I was like, wow. And we think, how does that happen? Well, there's some things that happen genetically, right, that we get. But he's also watching his dad. And acting just like his dad, it leads to a long, blessed life when we live in front of our kids, a life that honors God. It helps them. Big point number two, the parent's role in the family of God. Look at Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, this is addressed specifically to fathers, but mothers have authority in the home and many times are with the children more than the father. Let's be honest. Many times my mom would take care of our discipline when dad wasn't there, but I dreaded that phrase, and you you know what it is, I'm going to say, I'm going to let your dad take care of it when he gets home. There was no bargaining out of that spanking. Dad had mom's back, and she knew when to play that card. My kids knew that when Sherry played that card, and it wasn't very often, there was no bargaining. A point to note, mom and dad, you better be on the same page when it comes to discipline. You better be on the same page, because it doesn't take long for those kids to figure out who the softy is. They'll find you, and you know what? It's going to put you and your wife, you and your husband, at odds. So you better talk about it. So the first thing, do not provoke your children to anger. How is this done? How do we provoke our children to anger? Sometimes the discipline's too harsh. Boy, that can can cause our kids to be frustrated. The time doesn't fit the crime. There's never any mercy, mercy. This can change to physical abuse. Remember the goal, folks, in disciplining is a heart change. Once that happens, once they show that they've changed their hearts, it's done. Move on. Let it go. Quit bringing it back up again. Discipline's too harsh. The second one is this. Discipline's not enough. There's no real consequences, and it makes it easy to choose the wrong path. It's no big, big deal if I get caught. I can schmooze my way out of it. I play my parents like a fiddle. They won't get it, and I'll just go in there and turn the tears on, and I'll be scot-free. I'm going to do this. Not harsh enough. Kids will like this freedom on the surface, but will will resent you after it's in the hands of civil authorities and their relationships that come after you are an absolute train wreck. Third thing, discipline becomes personal. It's too harsh, not enough, becomes personal. We attack that child's character 
their physical attributes, or their standing as our child as an attempt at correcting wrong behavior. Folks, this is verbal abuse and can have a similar, if not worse, effect on our children uh, as, as, as physical abuse. Do not do that. That is an action. That child has done correct the action. Do not attack their character. You will leave permanent damage. The second part, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Folks, first of all, this is holistic. Raising a child in adulthood doesn't mean we just bring them to church on Sunday and Wednesday night, although that should be a part of what we do. Here you are preparing them to leave you and to lean on Jesus when you aren't there. As a parent, you're wanting to launch them like an arrow. Go read Psalm 127. It talks about our quiver. But we use them as an arrow to launch them. We're preparing them to leave us. The second thing, this should be a part of their home. We ought to be building a godly atmosphere around them at home that feels normal. When your child begins to venture out of their out of their own home, they will feel uncomfortable in an ungodly atmosphere. If you've built that as the norm, when they get outside outside of that norm, they'll go out and say, Ooh, I don't like this. This is terrible. I want this, because that's what my normal is. Here's a quick test. If someone walked in your home right now, would it be clear that you follow Jesus? Would there, would there be a lot of mixed signals? Let the Holy Spirit in. I'm not going to start picking out, we well, shouldn't have this, shouldn't have this, should have this, this. I'm not going to do that. But you know what? When we go to the Holy Spirit and say, God, is this honoring to you? What kind of atmosphere am I building for my kids? Let the Holy Spirit speak to you there. The third thing, they need to know what the truth is based on Scripture. There's a lot of truth going on out there right now, guys, and it's all relative to whatever I think is what it should be. It's scary. It is scary. Are you having those deeper discussions about faith issues with your children? Because someone's going to have those discussions with them. Do you put a high priority and value on the Scriptures as authority? When you make a decision, do you look at the scripture and say, well, what what does the Bible say about this? Make a decision because that's what your kids are going to do if that's part of the norm. What does scripture say about this? Then the fourth thing, get ready because it is hard. Every kid is different. Every stage they go through requires you to adjust. You have to stay one step ahead of them. You have to know what hills to die on. You have to stay on your knees. Amen? Guys, parenting is hard. What is God saying to you this morning? Teenager, young adult, what is God asking you to do? Parents, grandparents, what's he asking you to do? I doubt if anyone in here would say that you are a perfect parent. I know I've done some pretty dumb and selfish things as a parent. But in spite of it all, my father, God, still loves me and loves you and Man, it's encouraging, even in our Sunday school lesson this morning, all that bad stuff that happened, what you meant for evil, all the mistakes that were made, guess what? God was able to use it for good. You say, Kevin, what if I've already blown it? What you meant for evil, God meant for, God can still use it. If you will get on your knees and ask, in spite of it all, God, my Father still loves me and he loves you. 
Ask him to teach you to be more like him. He is a perfect parent. Let the Father speak to you. Will you stand? This morning, is God asking you to do something? I don't know what it is. But maybe he's telling you. Maybe maybe it's later after you go home today. You call up a, a child. Child, you call up a parent. Say, man, we had a message this morning, and this is what God was telling me. Can I challenge you to do what God's asked you to do this morning? Maybe you're looking for a church home. Maybe Pitts is the place that you've been praying about and feel like God's leading you that way. We'd love to have you. We'd love to talk to you. We're going to leave the front open if you want to come and pray here or pray where you're seated. Let God do in your life what he's asking. Let's pray. God, we do come before you as imperfect people asking for wisdom, God. Relationships, parenting, marriages, God, those are hard sometimes to do your perfect will in those. And God, we ask like Solomon to give us wisdom. Help us. God, if there are some relationships in this room today that need to be restored, I pray you give us the courage to do that. To maybe swallow some of our pride and go to somebody and say, you know what, I'm sorry. I blew it as your dad. Mom and Dad, I, I was rebellious as a child, and I'm sorry. Thank you for my spankings. I needed more. Whatever the conversation need, needs to be, God, we would humble ourselves. We would talk to that person who you've put in our heart right now, and we would get it right. God, you move in a way that only you can, and we ask this in Jesus' name.